This podcast is sponsored by GCK Consulting, a next generation political consulting firm. From fundraising to polling to campaign strategy, GCK is helping get millennials elected all across the country. To learn more about GCK and their services, just go to gckconsults.com. Again, that's gckconsults.com. All right, now to the podcast. Welcome to the Millennial Politics Podcast. I'm your host, Jordan Valerie. My pronouns are she, her, hers. And today I'm joined by Benjamin Yee, Secretary of the Manhattan Democratic Party, State Committeeman for Assembly District 66, and candidate for New York City Public Advocate. Thanks for coming on. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Yeah, of course. So what exactly is the New York Public Advocate, and why does the position matter to millennials? Great question. So the New York City Public Advocate is a position which was created all the way back in 19... 19- 89. It was the result of the abolishment of a different position called the President of the City Council. And there's a lot of reasons for why that happened, but ultimately the Public Advocate's Office was created as a counterbalance to New York City's mayor and as the second in line to the mayorship should something happen to the mayor. It was sort of created almost as a vice president, if you will, of New York City. They assume the office of mayor if the mayor is incapacitated, and they have a certain set of limited powers within the city government, but they're not as powerful as the mayor or as powerful as the legislature, for example. It's an incredibly important position, particularly for millennials, because it provides a place where new ideas and new voices can be heard and an advocate for disenfranchised communities, which is how it's traditionally been used and is something that millennials could seriously benefit from. In November, as I'm sure you know, several city council members introduced a bill to eliminate the public advocate's office, with the bill's sponsor saying, quote, We spend an enormous amount of money every year, well over $3 million, to keep this office operational, and I'm not sure that the taxpayers are getting value add for that, end quote. It's also been described as nothing more than a launching pad for higher office What do you think about these criticisms? I am definitely aware of that, Bill. And honestly, if you had asked me a few years ago what I thought the value of the public advocate's office was, you know, I might have been skeptical as well. I remember back when we had a runoff between Dan Squadron and Letitia James, uh, I posted on Facebook at some point that the cost of running a, a runoff, the cost of holding a runoff election was more than just paying both of them to serve as public advocate for a year. So we should do that because it's not like the public advocate has a lot of power and they could get in each other's way. Ultimately, the public advocate's office is not one of extreme power. It doesn't have a lot of budgetary power. It doesn't have executive power. It has minimal legislative power. But regardless of all of that, it is a potentially very useful office to the people of New York because there is no other part of the government whose sole job is to advocate for and represent the voices of New Yorkers relative or contrary to anything that might be happening in City Hall. So the real question that's facing us in this election is who has a plan for how to use the public advocate's office in a way that actually matters? Ultimately, folks view the office as a stepping stone because without any real power, uh, you, well, rather, without any real power, you don't have 
real responsibility. And so it's very easy right now for politicians to occupy this seat and to say things like, oh, I agree absolutely with your community, and then go to the next community and say, oh, I agree absolutely with what you're saying. And then when that thing for which you're all fighting doesn't happen, they can easily put the blame on the mayor or the city council and say, hey, I did my part, but without any real powers, you can't hold me responsible. So you go around and everybody loves the public advocate because there's nothing for which you could really hold them accountable and they're able to agree with everybody. So what I'm bringing to this particular race is actually a set of three concrete programs which can, which will use the public advocates limited resources and limited power to actually create systemic change for New Yorkers over the long term. And because whoever occupies, whoever wins this race has the opportunity to occupy the office for an entire decade because of the nature of the special election combined with two terms and then only after those 10 years, the term limits, uh, there's a real opportunity to change and institutionalize how this role works in a way that actually benefits New Yorkers. Could you tell us a little bit more about your plans as public advocate? I'd be happy to. So I have three programs which I've developed over a decade of organizing. These have all essentially been piloted in my time as a volunteer organizer, as an elected leader within the Democratic Party, and as somebody who's worked on campaigns and worked in issue advocacy all around the city and really all around the country. So the first one is called Civics for All. For the last two years, I've been teaching civics all around New York. I've trained over 4,000 people. And most importantly, when people have had access to the civic knowledge I teach, I have seen hundreds and hundreds of them go on to take next steps in their communities to build power and to um, be a voice and a leader where they live. And actually, I've been doing this for an entire decade. My very first thing uh, I did after serving on the Obama campaign in 2008, I was a digital director for all of New York State doing uh, social media, web, data. A friend convinced me to get involved in local politics. And the very first thing we did was run people for something called county committee. The Democratic Party uh, is broken into three levels. Actually, all the political parties are certainly national parties. So Republicans are the same way. You have three levels, a national party, a state party, and then a local party. And here in New York, the local party is the county party. At every level of the party, there's a governing committee. So at the national level, you have the RNC and the DNC. That's the Republican and Democratic National Committees. These are the folks that run the national party. Then at the state levels, you have state committees. And those are the folks who are responsible for governing the state party. So when you said that I'm a state committee man, from New York 66 Assembly District, it means I've been elected by voters in that area to represent them in the state party, the Democratic state party. And then there is a county party here in New York, and that is governed by the county committee. Now, a lot of these seats are actually vacant. And so instead of going down to Washington to serve in the Obama administration, my friend convinced me to get involved in New York City politics and New York state politics. And his pitch was, look, we can run young people who supported Obama for county committee and give a new constituency and a new community a voice in the Democratic Party. And I was sold on that idea, and we did it. And we elected some 70 people in that first year to the county committee. It really changed how that county committee operated, and it really changed 
what the Young Democrats were here in New York City. It is honestly one of, when I look back, one of my largest accomplishments. Providing this knowledge to people gives them an opportunity to engage in government. It breaks down the barriers to political decision-making and therefore governmental decision-making. So the first program is Civics for All. To get this information out to every corner of the city through workshops, through classes, through online guides, and through a hotline. And by hotline, I mean a single repository that people can call, text, or email to get information about how their government works and how to interact with it to solve problems on the ground. And then also, when they come up with problems, not just to direct them to their local council members or state assembly members, depending on what the problem is, but to also encourage them and give them an opportunity to sign up for a reminder to vote and give them at that time a reminder for why they called and who was responsible for it. So now you're starting to turn a question into political power. By listening to constituents and what they need, you're starting to generate political power by generating and creating information about who cares about what and whether or not they're signing up to vote. So that's the first program. The second program I call Power for Communities. Power for Communities is about bringing together community stakeholders in a proactive visioning process for city planning. So right now, we have a very reactive approach to city planning here in communities. City Hall, and particularly the mayor, comes up with an idea for what they want to do, build luxury towers somewhere, put a new jail or a new homeless shelter. And the communities are left trying to grapple with these rapid changes that are happening, dropping Amazon, for example, in the middle of uh, Long Island City, without any discussion with the community, without any talk of new infrastructure. And so Power for Communities would bring stakeholders together, such as community boards, community education, councils, NYCHA tenant boards, to talk about what we would like to see as New Yorkers in terms of development and solutions to the problems all New Yorkers know we have. When you do that, then you can build leverage. So when all communities can hash out amongst themselves who's going to accept which burden and what concessions they would like in return and what seems like a reasonable uh, approach given the constraints of the budget, then you can present that to City Hall instead of City Hall coming and saying, this is what we're going to do, you must accept it. And no politician wants to upset every single community at once. So you're building that political leverage for real change, even if you don't have executive power, even if you don't have budgetary power, because a mayor doesn't want to upset every community. And even if they did, they're a citywide elected, even if they didn't care, they were term limited out. No city council member wants to upset every community at once if they think that, oh, I'm going to be mayor, or I'm going to run for comptroller, I'm going to run for public advocate, or even just run for Congress or state senate. They're going to have new constituents, and they're not going to want to upset multiple neighborhoods or communities all at once. It's too dangerous. And so now you're building systemic power and systemic influence for communities in their own city planning. And the final program is justice for New Yorkers. The most impactful thing that the public advocates have done thus far is develop something called the Bad Landlords List, which lists all of these landlords who are in violation of housing laws. These are terrible, terrible landlords. And then the public advocate has set about suing them. And it wins about half the cases. Now, if you ask me, suing landlords is very important, but the win-loss ratio is a result of basically taking on cases which are not the most ideal. What we should be doing is taking out the cases that we could win 
and then spending our other resources on other bad actors that we can also win against. For example, employers who commit wage theft. There are lots and lots of these. They hurt the most vulnerable and uh, poorest New Yorkers. We have a board of elections that is purging voters. This is completely unacceptable. When you change electoral outcomes, you change who wins elections and you change what politicians care about. And we also have a city that I think needs to be sued every so often because there are developers that make concessions to communities when they do development. Those concessions total in the hundreds of millions of dollars here in New York. And the government is supposed to be there to enforce those concessions and execute on those concessions. And oftentimes it doesn't. And those concessions just evaporate into thin air. It's a tremendous loss for the residents of New York. And nobody is watching out of that. Nobody's nobody's cataloging that. And nobody's taking action to solve that problem. So those are the three programs which will build power for residents of New York and do something effective with an office that most people would rather use as an opportunity to generate press for themselves. Most politicians run for public advocate to focus on the public advocate. I'm running to focus on public advocacy. And you are one of many, many candidates in this race. What makes you stand out from the rest of the crowd? Well, I would say a few things. The first is that I have concrete proposals for how to use the public advocate's office that don't require increasing the public advocate's power and don't require action from the mayor or the city council or other elected officials. So one of the most common things I've heard at forums has been the public advocate should have subpoena power or the department investigation should be rolled into the public advocate's office. I think those are good ideas, but those are not ideas for how to use the public advocate's office as it exists. So first and foremost, I have a vision for the office as it is and not as I wish it were. Second, I have a unique background. I don't come from an elected background. I'm not a politician. I'm involved in politics because I care, but the positions that I hold are all volunteer, even the leadership positions to which I am directly elected by voters. I come from a tech background. I've been involved in civic tech for 10 years. I've uh, done civic startups. I've consulted with civic, civic technology companies, and I've worked for the government using technology to open up government processes, to open up government information, and to make government and politics more accessible. So my background isn't one of, let me be a career politician. Again, I've been involved for 10 years. If I wanted to run for office because running for office was my thing, I could have done that five years ago, right? I could have done that seven years ago, but I didn't. So I'm not a politician. I come to this as both a civic technologist and actually more recently an educator, because for the last two years, as I mentioned, I've been teaching civics, but I've also been teaching coding to children. I come from this from a very different perspective than I think any other candidate in this race. I'm not a political animal, per se. I care about politics, and I happen to have a skill set which I think applies greatly to where we happen to be in the 21st century in terms of what government needs and what people expect, honestly, from their government. I've been a big part of the transparency and open data movements, and I have been a, a leader within the Democratic Party for reforming the institutions that I feel have really kept people out. Again, I've helped hundreds and hundreds of people 
run for county committee to open up these local institutions, many of which are, you know, young folks, you know, my age and younger. Uh, and then I guess the last thing I'd say that differentiates me, I am younger. I'm a millennial. And that brings with it a whole different set of priorities and ideas. Things like student debt, the environment. These are all really critical issues that, you know, baby boomers talk about them. My father cares about the environment. But these are things which are non-negotiable for younger voters and younger members of our society and things that need to be grappled with. And people who have not, who, who don't think, who don't have a millennial perspective, just think about them differently. And it is time for somebody with that perspective to be in office. And I think that's something that we're seeing. That's a theme that's being repeated over and over again in sort of national politics. But we oftentimes forget how important local government is for moving these issues forward. And it's time to bring it to the local scene as well. Hey, everyone. I'm Nathan. And I'm Dylan. And as you know, Millennial Politics is totally independent and volunteer run. That means every podcast you listen to, every article you read, and every tweet you see is created by a dedicated team of volunteers. It also means that we can say what we want to say when we want to say it, but we rely on listeners just like you to support our work. We hope you'll consider supporting us by subscribing at patreon.com slash millenpolitics. Every dollar will go directly towards our mission of shining a spotlight on progressive candidates, causes, and organizations. And if you subscribe at the ambassador level or more, we'll send you a free copy of How Our Government Really Works Despite What They Say. It's an award-winning book about the intricacies of American government, and you'll get to join our exclusive ambassador Slack channel and get to hang out with us all day, every day. I pretty much live there. So if that appeals to you, come join us. And we want to give a very special shout out to our executive producer, Greg Stevens, and our producers, Brad Tracy and Renee Garcia-Brown. Again, if you want to continue hearing interviews and conversations just like this one, we hope you'll visit patreon.com slash millenpolitics. That's patreon.com slash M-I-L-L-E-N politics and join the movement. All right, now back to the show. And in New York City, we've seen we've seen some really impressive successes from Democratic socialists, whether they be Julia Salazar for state senate or Alexandria Ocasio Cortez for the United States Congress. What is your take on these? I am absolutely thrilled to see these new folks get into positions of elected office. I think it's absolutely amazing. I think that what Ocasio accomplished, I've been working with the Queens Young Democrats and sort of contrary to the Queens political machine for 10 years. And I cannot tell you how happy I was to see Alexandria Ocasio win. I knew about her candidacy before. I thought that it was an amazing candidacy, but also unlikely to prevail. And I sat down with her once actually for like an hour and a half and went over it. And I walked out. I remember what I said at the beginning of the conversation, which is, like I said, um, I don't think you have a good shot at winning. And by the end of it, I said to her these words. I said, oh, you have a path. And so I was exceedingly excited to see what Ocasio was able to accomplish. Same thing with Salazar. I think that this is the time for these issues. That is why folks like them are winning. It is also a great time 
for people who are not in the standard mold of politics to be getting involved because there's so much realization that we need to do things differently. And do you personally identify with democratic socialism? Absolutely. Uh, I have been involved in politics for 10 years, and if you went back and checked my record, I'm pretty sure you could find a clip or a post from the last decade in which I'm on what I would consider the right side of pretty much every issue for the last 10 years. And what exactly does democratic socialism mean to you? So for me, democratic socialism is a form of government which is both democratic and one in which the economic output of a society is there to benefit not just individuals, but the society as a whole. And so one very important part of democratic socialism is the democratic part. And that's the part that, you know, if you go on Twitter, all of the right wing folks always flip out about because they think that communism means gulags or whatever it is, Soviet style communism. But for me, democratic socialism is a pretty straightforward idea. It's a pretty straightforward idea where you have a democracy and the people of that democracy set up an economic system which cares for everybody in that society. It doesn't privilege capital, it doesn't privilege wealthy people. Everybody has their say, and we use the benefits of our economic production to help everyone, which isn't to say that there's perfect equality. That would be you know, difficult to, to accomplish. And I suppose there is also the idea that difference is valuable between people. So people don't have to be the same. But we do want a system which is equitable. And so oftentimes people point to uh, Northern Europe and the Scandinavian countries as an example of democratic socialism. And I think we can all see that they have not imploded and they're doing pretty well. And obviously, if everything was going absolutely fine, you wouldn't feel motivated to run for office in the first place. To what extent do you view the current city council and mayor as allies to your agenda? Well, right now, I do not view the mayor as a particular ally because I do not think that the mayor is doing anything in regards to listening to communities. It seems like the solutions that the mayor comes up with to the various problems facing New York City are all done in a back room, either by himself or with a small group of special interests, which leads to bad outcomes and bad policy, which get airdropped on communities all over the place. So my goal in this public advocates race is to fight for these programs, which I mentioned before, which will empower communities in the decision-making process. I actually think that there are a lot of things that the mayor is doing, which, you know, they might have rational arguments for why you'd want to pursue that course of action. But there is immediate opposition because communities do not feel consulted. And the viewpoint of New Yorkers is not incorporated into government decision-making. And in some regards, we have a democracy because people vote for the mayor, people vote for the city council members. But that democracy has become more and more detached from the population. And this, I think, is something, this is a general theme, this is a general trend throughout the United States. It's something that is weighing very heavily on people's minds. And it's because things aren't going so well that people feel like the government's not really looking out for their interests. So insofar as the city council or any mayor would be an ally to what I'm trying to accomplish, I am trying to accomplish 
intelligent, community-based city planning that solves and addresses the problems of New Yorkers for the long haul in a way that allows everybody to feel heard and to be included in that decision-making process. And as much as the mayor and city council are a partner to that and are a partner to communities, they are a partner to me, and I'm happy to work with them. But insofar as they are opposed to that or uninterested in working with actual residents of New York to solve problems, then they are an opponent. One issue where progressives have been sorely disappointed in the mayor is police reform. Where do you stand on this? Ultimately, the best sort of policing is community policing, where police are members of the community, they speak the languages of the community, they are known, the officers are friendly with the members of the community. Stop and Frisk, for example, is a program where you just have police officers come in and start patting people down based on suspicions. It's an inequitable way of doing policing. And so, for me, there are a lot of issues with the NYPD and the way that they work. A lot of it comes from the Bloomberg administration, the Giuliani administration, and a lot of it also comes from the fact that, for some reason, the federal government is constantly trying to militarize the police by sending them military hardware. I think that's insanity. Uh, The police are not the military, and they shouldn't behave as such. That being said, we do have institutions in New York City that allow our residents to be heard, but they're incredibly underutilized. For example, we have community precinct councils where members of the community are encouraged to engage with the leadership of police precincts and talk about the issues that are happening in the community and how the police should address them. There are actually community engagement officers, although I don't think there are enough of them and that program doesn't go far enough. And we also have the Civilian Complaint Review Board, which is a an institution meant to catalog and take civilian complaints about police activities, but is also generally regarded as semi-toothless. And so as a public advocate, going back to the power for communities idea, bringing people into these processes, bringing together these stakeholders, encouraging folks to engage and build political power around these institutions and movements was what will allow us to change the way that the NYPD operates. I can go on and on about a list of things that I don't think the NYPD does well or things that I think the mayor should be doing. But at the end of the day, these are all political decisions and they will be responsive to organized communities, which is why I believe the public advocate should be an institution and a governmental position responsible for empowering communities and why I have a plan to do exactly that. While it is not an official Democratic Socialist of America position, there are many individuals within the Democratic Socialists of America, including caucuses, that support abolishing the police along with prisons. What are your thoughts on that? I don't know about abolishing police altogether, only in so because I don't know how we would maintain the you know, how we would enforce the laws. There are many laws which need enforcement. I think one of the great problems with our society, though, is we enforce a lot of laws through the police on individuals, and we do extremely little enforcement of laws on corporations, uh, unscrupulous landlords, and other such special interests. So I think that one of the main issues here is that we have laws, they should be enforced. Our laws are arrived through generally are generally arrived through by a democratic process, and that's good, but we have 
unequal enforcement of the laws. And I don't think that what we should be saying is we don't need laws. We don't need enforcement of the laws. We should be saying that we have people who are committing crimes which really hurt folks, but they're white collar crimes. So they're not prosecuted. So nobody goes to jail. There should be equitable distribution of enforcement and punishment throughout the system. And crime should be based on how much you're actually hurting people. The idea that we certainly have over-policing, where the police are throwing people in jail, letting them languish in Rikers because they had some marijuana and these folks cannot afford bail, and that is supremely unjust. So the criminal justice system needs entire reforming. And as I mentioned before, I think that community policing is a much better model of policing. But to go without any form of enforcement, I don't think is uh, the... We certainly couldn't transition to that tomorrow, but we have other systemic issues in the criminal justice system where people who are doing harmful things face no penalty, and people who aren't doing harmful things are often penalized in ways that completely disrupt their lives, potentially in an unrecoverable way. How do you view our criminal justice system as a whole? Do you think we need to move towards a more restorative method rather than punitive? Oh yeah, absolutely. The idea of rehabilitation is a very important one. Otherwise, if you didn't believe in rehabilitation, what you do is you would just take people who committed crimes and lock them up forever because you'd say, oh, well, once they're bad, always bad. But that's not something that the American legal system envisions right now as it is. There's some idea that you pay for your crimes and then you come out and, you know, maybe you've learned your lesson. We do not have a criminal justice system or uh, legal system which is set up actually to enforce that concept. We have like a punitive justice system which doesn't really believe or, or not improve upon, but it doesn't really believe in or support a method by which people who have committed crimes can be helped out of a situation where they feel obligated, like that, that, that is that they need to commit those crimes to survive. And so a restorative justice system, I think, is a real priority. And I think that New Yorkers want it and they're ready for it. And it's a question of how do we get the government to take serious action? And how do you hope to stay connected to the activist community and to these communities you say that the mayor is not staying in touch with, given that you'll be representing such a large city? That is a very good question. And this is probably the number one thing which turns polit- you know, activists into politicians. And I don't use politicians in, uh, <laughs> in a nice way here. But ultimately, there are a few things that any politician should strive to do to ensure that they're always in touch with the community. The first is continue going to community events. There are a lot of people who once elected just stop going to things. But we do have some great examples of what happens when a politician continues to engage with activists and the people. Gail Brewer is a particular role model of mine, and Gail goes around after work on her own time attending every single event she can keeping up with the issues and activists who are a part of New York City's civic fabric. And that is really, really important. And people notice that. And most importantly, people notice that Gail still cares. And so part of what I've been doing for the last decade is going around 
to all of the different groups and all the different events and meeting all the other activists just because that's something that I've been interested in and I think is valuable to do as somebody engaged in bringing change to politics and policy. And so I would certainly keep up that tradition. Uh, people talk about, oh, campaigning is hard and what have you, and campaigning is definitely hard. But it's actually not that much different from what I've been doing for the last 10 years of my life, which is trying to go around and meet as many people who care about as many things as possible and help them if I can. And then the second piece is to actually have an office which is geared towards grassroots issues and activism. So it becomes very easy, especially for other public advocates in the past, to have a very grandiose sense of themselves and to sort of drift away from the public part of public advocate. Their idea of the office revolves around generating press for themselves so that they can move up. And that is one of the reasons that the office has been used and viewed as a stepping stone. But the programs that I mentioned uh, are really about staying in constant contact with community stakeholders, constantly listening to what they have to say, and not just listening, but trying to turn that into actionable advances for those communities and convening stakeholders. So when you use your resources like that and a public advocate is personally involved in these conversations and is involved in the outreach and is involved in teaching civics workshops to activist groups and civic institutions and schools, then you have a situation where that person is still in contact with the people who put them in office. And instead of a situation where a public advocate uses the office to build a voice for themselves and then become a mayor, for example, like de Blasio, who doesn't seem any longer to be in touch with communities, you have an office where the public advocate is building a voice for the thousands of other advocates to serve as a platform for all the other people in New York who are on the ground, who are doing the work of organizing. And then, whether that person moves up or not, and my vision is to stay in the public advocate's office to try and turn it into a sort of civic activation office. But when you have somebody dedicated to doing that and is actually running these programs and is engaged in them, then they have that regular touch with the voters and ideally don't drift away from them. Okay, awesome. Well, thank you so much for coming on to the podcast today. My pleasure. Thank you so much for having me and for taking the time uh, to listen and let me just uh, talk a bit about this race. Yes, of course. And lastly, to our listeners, make sure to follow Millennial Politics on social media, subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, and tune in to the Progressive Radio Network every week at 8 p.m. Eastern to hear our newest episodes. Thanks for listening.